Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Grab a Bible. Open up to John chapter 2 today. John chapter 2. And uh, this, uh, our text is, uh, is going to be verses 13 through 25. And I'm actually breaking this up into two weeks. And um, so today we're going to look at a couple of points. And then next week we're going to continue it in, this, in, this, uh, in these verses. Um, but here's what I need you to do. Take out your, your, your uh, insert, uh, if you got a notebook, whatever, and I want you to ask, answer this question for me, okay? Um, why were you created? What's your purpose? Write that down. And then I'm going to, in fact... Okay, who, I'd like to volunteer their answer. Blaine. To praise and worship God and to draw others to him. Praise and worship God, draw others to him. Anybody else? Why were you created? To honor God? Love God? Serve God? Serving others? Okay, you all did pretty good there. How about if I give you the answer, okay? Because Colossians chapter 1 gives us the answer, and it's this. Colossians chapter 1, you can write this down. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says this. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Here it is. All things were created by him, and for him. That's why you were created. You were created for Christ. Nothing else. But Jim, I was created to, to build a business. No, you weren't. I was created to, to, to marry this guy and, and raise a great family. No, you weren't. I was created to be a, a superstar. No, you weren't. You were created for Christ. You were created for Jesus. You were created to have a relationship with God. Okay? God created things not because he got bored. God didn't create humanity because he's like, well, I have nothing better to do. No, he created humanity for one sole purpose, is to have a relationship with us. He wants us to be close to him. He wants us to, to, to be part of this relationship with him. And so, but here's the thing. Not only did God create us for him and he comes after us, but guess what he wants us to do? Draw near to him. It's a two-way street. God wants to have a relationship with you, but he wants you to desire to have a relationship with him. He wants us to draw near to him. And that's what I want to look at today and next week about drawing near. And, and as, I put the, as I was reading through the, these verses, that's what just kind of kept coming up is what do you and I need to do so we can draw closer to God? What can we do to draw near? 
So today I want to look at two points. Next week we're going to look at two more. But here's a couple reasons, a couple things that you and I need to do in order to draw near. Here's number one. In order to draw near, have a passion for God's house. If you want to draw near to Christ, you have to develop a passion for his house. So if you look at John chapter 2, starting with verse 13, let me read down to verse 17. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a, uh, my father's house, a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus, it says that Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem because it's the time of the Passover. Now, if you remember the Passover, um, you can read about the Passover in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. This is when Israel was captive and were slaves in Egypt, and it was time for God to get his people out. And he sends Moses to Pharaoh, and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, that's not happening. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send 10 plagues upon Egypt, and that will break the heart and break the arrogance and break the pride of Pharaoh, and he will let my people go. Well, plagues 1 through 9 didn't happen. But the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, this is when God told Moses, I'm going to send an angel of death upon the nation of Egypt, and every firstborn will die. So Moses, you and my people need to do this. You need to kill a lamb, a one-year-old lamb with no blemish. It's got to be perfect. And you, you kill it, and you take its blood, and you wipe it around the, 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 the doorposts and over the top of it. And when that death angel comes down upon Egypt, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. You will be protected and your firstborn will not die. But every firstborn of Egypt, from animal to man, will die. And that took place. So Moses and all the people of Israel at that time killed the lambs painted the doorpost, then took the lamb and they cooked it. And they ate other bitter herbs and they ate other things along with this meal. And that meal became known as the Passover meal. And it was to be celebrated annually every year. So here's what Jesus is doing now. Thousands of years later, this ceremonial meal this celebration every single year has been taking place. And now Jesus, for the first time, we recognize he's up now coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he's coming at a time where not just the Passover is being celebrated, but also where Jews from all over the nation from all over the region, the area, would be traveling from the north, the south, the east, and the west for miles upon miles to converge on Jerusalem. 
And all of these Jewish people were coming to celebrate the Passover, but also it was a time where they would go to the temple to sacrifice. They would bring their animals, and it was a time of sacrifice. And you can read about the different kind of sacrifices that, that the, the, the Mosaic law required of the, the Jews, like in the book of Leviticus. And God required these times. And there were certain times of the year that the Jewish people had to travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice. This was going on. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he's going to celebrate the Passover. Now look at verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Some of you men said of pigeons may have doves. And it says, and the money changers were sitting there. So Jesus comes into the temple. Here's a picture of the temple. It, it's, it's, it's a model. But this would give you an idea of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. Now, this was the second temple. All right? This was based off of um, the tabernacle in the book of um, Genesis, or I mean the book of Exodus, when God first told Moses when they were, were out in the desert, he goes, I want you to build me a tabernacle. I want a house. And, and, and Moses builds this tabernacle out of, out of um, cloth and, and, and builds this, this structure and it has an outer court and then it has a holy place and then a holy of holy place. And this is where the priests would go in to perform their duties. And, and it says that the Spirit of God would come down in that place. Well, it got to a point where David was so broken of, over of the fact that God did not have a house. David's like, I got a house. But God does not have a physical house. So David, King David, had a burden to build a temple. But God was like, you're not going to do it, David. Your son Solomon will build this thing. So when Solomon became king, he built his first temple. And if you, if you go to the, the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you can read about this thing. It was glorious. And, and, it, and it was like this place where Israel could come and worship God and sacrifice. And, and it, was a, it was in Jerusalem. But Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then this one was built. But unfortunately, it was built by King Herod, a wicked king. But he did it for the Jews. So this became the, the temple in Jesus' day. You have this place. You can kind of see, like, on the, on the outside, a big open area. That was called the court of the Gentiles. And then you have the inner court. And then the big structure is where the holy place and the holy of holies was. But the court of the Gentiles, this is where Jesus would have come into. And he came into this place, and it says that there were people selling animals, cattle and oxen and sheep and doves and whatever. They're selling this thing, and, and, and that's where they would have been. And Jesus comes in, and he sees this. Now, Jesus doesn't go, Perfect. Sacrifice time. I'm glad you guys are doing this. That's not what he does. Look at verse 15. It says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the, the, the coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons. And here's the one reason why Jesus did this. Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
There's two reasons I'm going to show you why Jesus did what he did. He walks into the temple. Go ahead and bring that back up. He walks into the temple, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. He's in this huge open space, and he sees all these people, all these merchants, and they're selling their cattle, and they're selling doves, and you've got all these Jewish people who have come to Jerusalem for one purpose. What do you think that one purpose was? Do what? Close. That one purpose was to worship God. That was it. And they were coming to celebrate the Passover. They were coming to, to honor the, the, the ceremonies that God had put in place in his law to, to sacrifice their, their, their animals for their sin. They were coming to worship God. And the way, the place they did that was is at the temple, God's house. That's where we worship. And so Jesus is seeing all of this activity, and he goes off. And he, 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 he looks around and he finds like, like, like strands of whatever it could have been. And he makes a, like a whip. And he, he starts driving the animals out. Now, along the, the outside of this thing, there would have been gates um, in the wall. And he would have driven them out of the gate, out into the open area. And he was knocking over the money changers. And, and you ever see it like on the news when a, um, like, uh, an armored truck breaks down? And like money is flown all over the place. People, imagine what would have been going on when the money changes are flipped over. Money scattering everywhere. It would have been chaos. And Jesus is like, here's what got him so upset. You've turned my father's house into a house of, a market, a house of trade. It's nothing more than a store. And he's like, you've lost it. See, here's what was happening. You got to, if you can kind of put yourself in this position. Jerusalem was the place you had to go. Now, unlike today, if a, if a, if a, a farmer has cattle or pigs or something or horses, and, and they need to take those cattle to market, and the market, let's say, is 50 miles away, a farmer today has a trailer. And he puts the cattle in the trailer, hooks the trailer to the truck, drives 50 miles. You're there in an hour. You drop them off and you go home. Imagine in Jesus' time, you were a farmer and you had cattle and you knew it's time to go to Jerusalem, but we live 75 miles away. And I've got to get a cow to Jerusalem. How are you doing that? That's a burden, isn't it? Number one, you're walking or you're on a donkey and you're moving at a probably about three or four miles an hour, okay? So it's probably going to take you maybe a couple days to get there. And how are you going to, what are you going to do with your cow? So here's what a lot of these people did. who They had to travel long distances. They didn't take any animals. They got to the city with nothing. Well, how are you going to sacrifice something if you don't have anything? Well, here's where people came in. They did it to, to offer a service first. They sold cattle, and people could, could buy it, okay? Now, here was the other thing about going to the temple. People were also required to pay a temple tax. Could you imagine coming into church, first thing you had to do before you got in the, hey, pay your church tax. We got bills to pay this week. They had to pay a temple tax, okay? So here's the thing. The temple tax was a shekel. It was a Jewish coin. Well, guess Israel was under Roman occupation. 
So guess what? The coins were predominant, Roman coins. So when they got to Jerusalem, they would have Roman coins. So guess what they had to do? Exchange them for Jewish coins. So guess what these people, these businessmen were doing? Supply and demand. The demand is high. Supply is low. So guess what we're going to do? We're jacking the rates up. The cow that usually could, you could buy at maybe five bucks, we're going to charge you 30 bucks. The exchange rate, it just doubled. So Jesus is seeing these people in the, go ahead and bring that temple back up. Go ahead and leave that temple up until I tell you to change it. He sees all these people in the, the court of the Gentiles, and it's packed, man. Have you been to a flea market or something, and you're just like vendors everywhere, okay? And he's seeing all of these, these, these people selling stuff, and he's just like, you are exhorting, and you're, you, you're using people. You're, you're stealing from people. And he goes off on them, and he drives them out. But the ultimate purpose for Jesus to do this is actually found in verse 17, it says his disciples remembered that it was written, and this is written in Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. The ultimate purpose for Jesus to do this was that they took the house of God, turned it into a market, but he had such a passion for God's house that it, it caused something in him, like inside of him almost to break. You see, that word zeal, it comes from the Greek word zealous, where we get our, our English word zealous or zeal, and it means fervent passion, enthusiastic devotion, single-minded allegiance. Jesus had a single-minded allegiance he had a, a fervent passion, and that single-minded allegiance was one thing. What do you think it was? God's house. Because the people had turned it into a market. The people had lost the significance of what the temple was for. And here's the thing. The, the people in the, the, the court of the Gentiles, the, the money, the money guess how they got in there? By authorization of the spiritual leaders. It was the Pharisees. They're like, hey, we can make some coin on this too. We can get rich. So we're going to let these guys into the temple. They'll charge exuberant prices. The money changers will jack up the price of exchanging money. We're going to get rich. Everybody's in this to win it. Well, here's the problem. Everybody lost the significance of the temple. They lost the purpose. They lost the purpose that the temple was only for one thing, worship. We are here to worship our God. We're here to sacrifice to him. We're here to offer our, our devotion to him. And they lost it. I like how Jane, uh, John uh, MacArthur says this. He says, what had begun as a service to the worshipers had under the, had under the corrupt rule of the chief priest degenerated into exploitation and usury. Religion had become external, crass, and materialistic. And the temple of God had become a den of robbers. You see, Jesus had such a passion for the house of God. He had one allegiance, and it's to my Father. And he sees these people turning the house of God into something that it shouldn't be. And he drives them out because he's got to clean and purge this thing because they made it unholy. Unholy. 
They lost their priority of what the temple was all about. The temple was to worship God. It was for the people to come to this place and to worship the God who rescued them and saved them out of the exodus and, 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 and to focus their energy on that. And that's not what they were doing. But how does this apply to you and me? I mean, okay, yeah, that's great. Jesus had a passion for, for God's house. Let me ask you this question. Do you have a passion for God's house? Let me ask you a quick question. Where's God's house? You're in it. For us, yes, the church is the people, but we come to a place, and this place becomes God's house. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that he talks about two temples. Our body is the temple of God, but guess what? This place is also the temple of God, and he says the Spirit of God dwells here. If you remember when I went through the churches of Revelation, it says that Jesus walks among the churches, the Spirit of Christ. So, so guess what we need to have is a mentality that says, this is the house of God. And so guess what our priority needs to be on a Sunday morning? To get to the house of God, for what purpose? To worship God. Nothing else. Let me ask you this question. What are you more passionate about on a Sunday morning? To worship God at his house? Or other plans? Other things? Other priorities? We are his people. Just as the Jews were in that time, they were God's people. Now, because of Christ, we become part of his church, part of his body, part. We are his family, his people. And guess what we are to be We are to be lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. That needs to be a priority for us. That needs to be a passion in our heart. That needs to be a, a, an allegiance within us to say, Jesus, man, look what you've done for me. I will worship you. But the reality is, I think the American church has grown very cold in this. And especially, and, and I'm going to be, I've been saying to myself, wow, COVID has really created a funky culture for the church. No, COVID has not. Can I tell you that, that, that worship in the American church has grown lukewarm for a long time? Paul and I have been to churches where, where we, we, I mean, I'll never forget when we went to the, a church with our kids and they're like, oh, um, First song, nobody's there. Second song starts to fill up. Third song, it gets pretty full. That's our mentality. God, I'll show up when I'm ready. Or God, I'll go to church if I feel like it. God, I'll come and worship you if nothing else gets in the way. And the reality is, and, and I say this with love. Love the ones hear me. We have too many people in this church. And you've heard me say this. I can't be concerned about the other churches in Woodhall and Alpha. I'm concerned about this church. We have too many people in this church who can miss every other week. 
We have too many people in this church who can miss two, three, four, five weeks, show up for one or two, and be gone another three, four, five weeks. We have too many people in this church who can miss more worship than they are attending. That should be a red flag. Not for the church corporately, but for you, your heart. Because something's broken there. If, 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 because I think what we do is we just turn church just in attendance. It's, well, we go to church because we get to see everybody. We get to hang out with everybody. We get our church check mark. We, get, we've, we fulfilled our spiritual obligation. We go and sing a couple songs. We just hear a message, blah, blah, blah. Let's go home now. And we, we, we're good. And the problem with that, the danger of that mentality is then we just turn church just in some, it's just something I attend. Like I attend my kid's basketball game. I, I attend a, a, a bridal shower. It's just something we do. And, and the danger is we can create a very complacent, apathetic attitude where this isn't God's house and it's not about worship. It's just a place we go. So if I'm there, great. If I'm not, no big deal. You see, you and I, need to have a passion, a fire burning inside. Now, I was, I, I was, you know, having a breakfast with Adam Sini yesterday, and I told him, I go, dude, I go, I'm not asking people to every Sunday showing up, going, we're going to church, woohoo, and we're just like all fired up for going to church. I'm not talking that. Because, I mean, you know, there's times you, come, you wake up on Sunday, anybody other than me, there are Sundays I wish I could just call it in, but I can't because I'm the pastor, Okay. But I'm going to be honest, if I wasn't the pastor, guess what on some, some days I would probably not do? Not come to church. Because I just don't feel like it. I get those. Those Sundays are real. But those Sundays should be very few, far, and in between. If your passion is not there, you need to pray, God, I need a fire because I want to worship my Savior. I, I want to go to your house, God, not because I'm just fulfilling my spiritual obligation, not just because I'm getting my spiritual check mark, but God, I'm going to your house so I can worship my Savior. You see, if you want to draw close to and draw close and, and draw near to the Lord, guess what you need to have a passion for? His house. Here's the second thing. In order to draw near, here's the second point for this week is this. Know the power of his resurrection. Know the power of his resurrection. Starting with verse 18, it says, And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? So Jesus has just cleared out the temple. He, 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 he just is like, that's it. We're done. Drove them out, man. Money flying everywhere. Chaos just. And then all of a sudden it says, Jews, that's talking about the religious leaders, probably the Pharisees, the chief priests. They're, they're like, how many of you know? They're just like, we just lost money today. The market just tanked. We're not getting paid. Um, find the dude that did. And they, they, they look at Jesus and they're like, who are you? By what authority are you doing this? 
show us a sign. Because they're like, you see, the Pharisees, you got to remember, they were the guardians of the Jewish religion. All right. They were the protectors of the faith. They, they, they wanted to make sure that people were in line and doing it right. So they, you know, they were coming up with even new laws. All right. They were, they were incorporating new things. They're like, yeah, that's the old law. We're going to incorporate. They were making sure people were doing their right thing. So they were the, part, the, the, the guardians. And now they have this guy coming in, driving everybody out of the temple. And they're like, you better show us a sign to prove you have authority to do this. Because you're some new kid on the block, and that's not happening. And so Jesus is like, okay, here's what I will show you, and here's what he says. Look at verse 19. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said and said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus looks at these Pharisees, looks at these chief priests, says, I'll tell you what, rip down a just tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. Now here's the thing. This is the first time we read in the book of John that Jesus is speaking about something spiritual by using like a, a, a metaphor. But the thing is, whenever Jesus talked about the spiritual, people could only see the physical. So he's talking in a spiritual sense. He's talking about his body. He's talking about the fact he's, then this is also the first time that we see him prophetically speak about his death. He's prophetically speaking, saying, one day you all are going to tear this temple down. One day you all are going to put me on a cross. I'm going to die. But guess what? Mm, I'm not staying there. Because even though this temple is going to be destroyed, this body is going to be destroyed in three days, it's coming out. The temple, the, the grave that I'm going to be in, it's just going to be a user. It's going to be on loan. I'm not going to buy it or anything. It's just going to be a loaner because I'm coming out. That's what he's prophetically speaking here. But all they could see was, dude, this thing's huge. It took us 46 years to build this thing. And you're going to erect it again in three days? I don't think so. Even his disciples, because you got to remember, he had disciples at this time following him. His disciples, when Jesus said that, didn't believe it. Their eyes were still like, what? Because could you imagine, could you they put yourself in that situation for a moment? You were a devoted Jew. You were a follower of Christ. And Jesus says that, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Let me ask you, would your head tilt? What? What are you talking about? That's impossible. His disciples did that. And the reason why we know that is because it says, after Jesus rose from the dead, they were like, light bulb came on. Ah, that's what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the temple temple. He was talking about his body. And they got it. And it says they believed the scriptures, meaning all the Old Testament prophecies they, again, after he rose, while he was alive, they were still going, hmm, can we really believe this? I don't know. But after he died and rose again, everything the scripture said sunk deep, and it anchored them, and they believed it, and they believed what Jesus said, and they grasped the truth of the power of his resurrection. 
They believed in it. They knew it. And they knew what that resurrection could do. You see, that's why Paul writes in Philippians 3.10. He says, I wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul's like, I wanted to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. Why do we need to know the power of the resurrection? Why can't we just say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But why do we need to know and believe in the power of the resurrection? I want to give you three reasons why you and I need to believe in the power of the resurrection. Here's the first reason why you and I need to believe in the power of the resurrection. It's this. The power of Jesus' resurrection, it overcame the power of spiritual death. The power of Jesus' resurrection overcomes the power of spiritual death. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says this very simple line. And probably if you were to read this, you would probably just read it and just jump right over and go on because you wouldn't understand it. You're like, what does that mean? Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Honest time. How many of you would say, Jim, I have no idea what that means. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. See right there. Everly. No idea, dude. None. And I bet a lot of you are like, Everly, I have no idea what that means. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead? What does that mean? The firstborn of the dead does not mean anything to do with time or birth chronologically. What it means is the firstborn has the idea of rank. Okay? That Jesus... Because here's the thing. How many of you know Jesus was not the first person to ever be raised from the dead biblically? Okay? If you go back to 2 Kings with Elisha the prophet, he raised a young boy back, to, back from the dead. So Jesus wasn't even around yet, but yet Elisha did it in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus did it to the, the, widows, the, the widow who was crying and her, her son from Nain had died. Funeral procession was gone, and Jesus was like, dude, get up. Raised from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's three people in the Bible we know that rose from the dead before Jesus ever did. So that's not what it's talking about. When it talks about that Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, it means that he ranked before everybody. And meaning that when Jesus died, because everybody else who rose from the dead, what happened to them again? They died again. Jesus rose from the dead, but guess what he did not do again? He didn't die again. So he's the firstborn to die and not die again. Now that's good news for you and me because you and I, and here's where the power of the resurrection comes in. The power of resurrection, we sang some songs about this. The power of the resurrection protects us from death. Not physical death. We're all going to die physically, right? Your your lungs are going to breathe its last breath one day. Your heartbeat will beat for the last time. You will be buried physically. It's the spiritual death that he protects us from. Now, what do I mean by spiritual death? The book of Revelation talks about this idea of spiritual death or eternal death, and it, it, it refers to it as the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, is the great white throne judgment. And this is, talks about that there will be people standing at the great white throne. And, 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 and I'm, I'm going to believe that's probably going to be Christ on the throne. 
And there will be people standing before him. And it says that books are going to be laid open. And everybody's going to give an account of what they did here on this earth. But then there's going to be one particular book opened up, and it's called the book of life. And every single person is going to stand at that throne, and the book of life is going to be open. And it says that if their name is not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. You see, the book of life is about people who, because you got to remember, we all are alive physically, but not everybody is alive spiritually. The book of Ephesians tells us that all of us, without Christ, are spiritually dead. Before God, you are spiritually dead without Christ. The only way you are born again spiritually, and we're going to see this when we get into chapter 3 of John, you've got to become born again spiritually, that your, your spirit is rebirthed. And the only way that happens is when you and I come to that place where you profess Christ as your Savior. When you say, Jesus, I am a sinner, and I'm dead in my sin, and I can't save myself. Jesus, be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. And I commit myself to him. I, I give myself to Christ. That At that moment, my name is in the book of life. And anybody who does not come to that place where they turn from their sin and they repent of their sin, confess that they're a sinner, when anybody who does not accept Christ as their Savior, their name is not found in the book of life. And so Revelation says, if anybody's name is not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. They're eternally separated from God for all eternity in hell. That's the second death. But because of the power of Christ's resurrection, you and I are saved from that. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. You see, how do you share the first resurrection? He's talking, it's a combination of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of eternal life. The way you share in the, the, the resurrection to eternal life is you know Jesus as your Savior. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, your body is going to die one day and be placed in the ground. And when your body is placed in the ground, you are immediately in the presence of Christ. But there's going to come a day, as Thessalonians says, that Jesus is going to return. And he's going to give a shout like the archangel. And guess what's going to happen? Bodily resurrection. Those who are dead first, their bodies are going to get out of the grave, meet their spirit in the air, and then anybody else left alive at the rapture is going to be caught up with Christ in the air and go back to heaven. That's the first resurrection. It's eternal life. And because you have that eternal life, you've been raised with Christ, and now you're in heaven. Guess what? It has the power to break. The power of the second death. You won't experience the eternal separation from God. Because Christ protects you from that. The, 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 the power of Christ's resurrection gives you the power over the second death. But loved one, listen to me. If you don't know Jesus is your Savior, you are not born again. You, your, your spirit is still dead. Your name is not written in the book of life. If you don't know Jesus is your Savior, I'm telling you, you, when you die physically, you will stand at the great white throne. And at that point, there is no second chance. 
You die once and then you go to judgment. And at that point, if your name is not found in the book of life, you will face the second death. And the only way, you've, the only way to escape the second death is to know the first resurrection. And that is through Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing about knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection is this. It assures our faith and salvation. The power of Jesus' resurrection assures my faith and my salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is having a debate with people, even people in the church of Corinth, because there were people in Paul's time that was like, okay, this whole teaching that you keep talking about resurrection is nonsense, Paul. There's no way people are resurrecting from the dead. There's no way once you die, you're dead. You're not coming out of that grave. Resurrection is nonsense. And Paul's having this debate. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, Paul's like, okay, if there's no resurrection, then that means even Jesus hasn't been resurrected. And if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, we as Christians means nothing. And you are still in your sin. And if you are still in your sin, you will face the second death. You see, he's arguing, no, 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 no. Jesus did rise from the dead. Because if he's not raised, none of us are. If he's not raised, then our faith means nothing. It's futile. It's pointless. It's meaningless. How many of you know, even, G even Paul said, he goes, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are the most to be pitied. Because people are looking at us, because people are saying, man, you guys are really banking your faith on something big, aren't you? And a lot of people, how many of you know people think Christians are fools? Because we're banking everything on one thing. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's it. The death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith. If that is not real, let's just close up the church and quit coming. Why are we doing this if it's not real? Because it is. Jesus died and he was in the ground. And in three days, he came up out of that ground. And he is the firstborn among the dead. And he is dead. He died once, but yet he is alive today. And that's what, that assures me. Because Jesus is alive, he came up out of that grave. I know my faith is right, and I know I'm saved in him. That's the assurance that you and I have because of the power of the resurrection. And then here's the third one. The third reason why you and I need to believe in the power of the resurrection, because it's an anchor for my faith and hope. It's an anchor for my faith and hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter writes, he says, Through Christ you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Peter's like, man, because you believe in Christ, you believe in God. Because you believe in God, you know he raised Jesus from the dead. And because he raised Jesus from the dead, guess here's where your hope is. It's not in anything else. It's only in one thing. It is in God. Your faith and hope is in God. 
Why? Because you believe in Jesus Christ. You believe that God raised him from the dead. And if you can believe that God raised him from the dead, you can anchor your faith to who God is. And what Peter is saying, he's like, he's like if you can believe in, in, in Christ, you can believe in the resurrection because those are big things to believe in, aren't they? He's basically saying if you can believe in those things, you can believe for God for anything in your life. When the storm comes in, we sang that song, It Is Well. Man, if, if I can believe in Jesus and I can believe in one of the most extraordinary extraordinary things ever that there's a guy that died and he rose again and he's alive and not if I can believe that I can trust in God through the storm you see that's why Paul writes in in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 Paul is praying in chapter 1 some things that he's asking that God would illuminate to the church and he says I pray that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. And then in Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to the power that is work within us. You see, even Paul's like, because of the resurrection, the power that, that God used to raise Christ from the dead is for you. And he goes, and you can believe God for the immeasurably more, the exceedingly and the abundantly more that God can work in your life, whether you know it or not, God is there. Why? Because that power is available. That's what this whole thing about the resurrection is about. When I know I can believe in Christ and believe in that resurrection, I can believe in that power that raised Christ from the dead, how can I not trust God in my hardest time? Listen, when you go through the storm and the trial, your hope is not in your job. Your hope is not in, well, I hope the economy comes around, boy. My hope is in that the inflation's coming down. Your, your hope is not in the government. Man, my hope is in, I'm, I'm hoping that, that peace comes between Russia and Ukraine. My, my hope is that my kids get their act together. Your hope can't be in anything except for one thing. In the power of the resurrection, believing in God. That's where your hope lies. And when my hope is in God and God alone, God, I trust you. When nothing makes sense in my life, God, I trust you. When my kids are still wandering, God, I trust you. When the money's not there, God, I trust you. When the doctor's report comes back, God, I trust you. God, when nothing is aligning right, God, I trust you. And God, even if you slay me, yet I will trust you. Why? Because even in my death, I have the confidence of knowing because Christ died and he rose from the dead and I know him as my savior. Even if God chooses to say, give me back my breath, I know I'm okay because in Christ, I also am resurrected. That's why you believe in the power of the resurrection because of who Jesus is and what it anchors you to. If you can believe in Jesus, 
and you can believe in the resurrection, that they should anchor your, anchor your faith and your hope to who God is. And no matter what you're going through, that anchor in God will not move. Amen? Let's all stand. Let's all get ready to close. And I want to encourage you, whatever's going on in your life, and maybe even those of you at home, this song we're going to sing, I would encourage you to sing it by faith. How many of you know it's, it's sometimes hard to sing praise songs and worship God when life is hard? Because you just don't have it in you. Well, maybe today you're there. Maybe you're online and you're watching and you're like, man, that's just been what I've been, everything you said, Jim, that's it. Today, right now, whether you're here or online, I would encourage you to pray to sing this song in faith. That the resurrected king is resurrecting you. And so, Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Jesus, for, for what you've done for us and that we know that you are the resurrected king and you're resurrecting us. And we can anchor our faith in God because of who you are and what you've done. You're alive today. You're interceding for us. You are our mediator. There's nothing in our life that you cannot do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or think. And so, Father, we just thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name.